Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. Alan and Mona are on assignment this week, so I'm bringing to you an interview with Amber Hefner, and she is a local immigration lawyer. And this is an issue and a topic that we've wanted to tackle on the show for a while now, but all of us felt somewhat ignorant to the details of what's going on. And uh, I immediately thought of Amber for this episode because she... She, I've gotten to know her the past couple of years, and she has this amazing balance of fierceness and compassion. And she is the exact type of person that you would want to be working in this area for people that are marginalized in our country and outside of our borders. So without any further ado, Amber, welcome so much for um, coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, let's just start. Tell us a little bit about yourself and... Yeah, I am a solo practitioner. I do 100% immigration law. I have an office in Los Osos, California. I'm working predominantly with Mexicans um, that live in this area, though I also work with Central Americans and people from all over the world. And my specialty is family-based immigration, so family members that are petitioning to get lawful status um, for their spouse or their child or their parent. And then I also do quite a bit of pro bono asylum work as well. And what exactly is pro bono asylum work? Well, pro bono means that um, I don't charge for my services. So that's important. Um, asylum is, uh, we've been hearing a lot about refugees um, in the news, obviously. And basically, asylum is when you arrive in the United States and you petition the government to grant you the ability to stay in the U.S. because you've been persecuted in your home country. Um, refugees are proving the same thing, but they are outside of the United States. And so they are getting their refugee status before being allowed to enter the U.S., hmm. whereas asylees have arrived here and are petitioning from within the U.S. So I work mainly with asylum seekers because they're here, whereas refugees are outside of the U.S., and so you would be probably an international aid worker if you were working with refugees. Okay. Well, let's see. That's a good clarification. Yes. And uh, the way you get asylum is by proving that you were persecuted in your home country based on um, a protected ground, which could be your race, your religion, your political beliefs, your membership in a particular social group. And um, right now I'm working with minors from Central America, primarily El Salvador, who are fleeing gang violence, uh, mm. sexual assault, and other kinds of issues that are going on in Central America right now. Wow. So you know, before we go on to other stuff, how subjective is that? Is there some sort of like list or guideline on what, like if you check this many boxes, the government deems that you are, that you have been persecuted or is it kind of the job of like, you, the lawyer, to try to paint a picture that convinces them otherwise, and it's more depending yeah. upon the judge and all that? It's very, very hard for people that aren't used to our system to articulate what's happened to them. Um, working with minors in particular is challenging because... So I just did a pro bono asylum case that was granted, which is wonderful. And a client was a young girl that um, from the age of nine was sexually abused by a family member. Her parents were in the U.S., Working, so she'd been left with a grandmother and aunts and uncles. And when she fled and, and arrived here, she um, was put in a detention center with other kids. And then she was released to her mom. 
And my job was to present her story to an asylum officer um, through her declaration, through collaborating expert opinions, um, to show that her particular social group, the reason she was persecuted, is because she was an abandoned female child who couldn't leave her, her family group. So because she was um, living in the home of her abuser in El Salvador, unlike the U.S., there really is no way to report that type of crime to the police. There's really absolutely no accountability um, for crimes against women and girls. Mm. So even if the person was arrested, which was very unlikely to happen, he would likely be released very quickly. And then her life would have been in uh, more danger. And mixed in with all that was that this particular abuser was a member of a Calle 18, which is the an 18th Street gang. That's a pretty notorious gang in El wow. Salvador. So there was gang violence, there was sexual assault. And so my job was to help my client um, get her story out and explain that because it's all her word because there's no mm. proof of any of that. There's no proof of sexual abuse. There's no proof that her uncle was in the gangs. I mean, it's all her story. And so getting that written and then prepping her for an interview so that she could answer an official's questions in a way that showed she was credible. Mm. And that happens more in like a like a meeting space. It's not a court situation. So, um, because she was an unaccompanied child, she arrived without an adult. She had some special laws that applied to her. So she was put in immigration court proceedings. And if she had been an adult, she would have gone straight to presenting her case in front of an immigration judge, which would have been kind of like a mini trial where mm-hmm. she would have been testifying. But the law allows for minors to actually start with what we call an affirmative asylum application where they go to an asylum office. Ironically, for our jurisdiction, uh, the asylum office is in Anaheim, two blocks from Disneyland, which is just ironic. So um, (laughs) you actually see like little kids walking with their Minnie Mouse hats and um, while you're waiting with your client in the parking lot about to go in for for this interview. Oh, what a deep contrast. Oh my goodness. Um, And so, yes, so it is an asylum officer and I requested a female asylum officer for this particular kid and you wait in this big waiting room and it's kind of somber and then they call you back and you bring a translator because my client didn't speak English. Um, She did not want her mom actually with her. Um, So it was me, the translator, my client and the officer and Mm -hmm. resat and the interview is um, was about two hours. So I, um, my job really was to, to prep her for being able to answer questions, you know, openly, directly, but also without re-traumatizing her. Yeah. Which is hard. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. And, um, after that interview, the officer determined that yes, my client was credible. Yes, she had been persecuted and that persecution was protected because she was a member of this social group of, or of abandoned children. And her asylum was granted. If the officer had determined that my client wasn't eligible, then we would have had a second bite at the apple in front of an immigration judge, which would have been a a hearing. But luckily, we didn't have to go that far. Um, Just to put in there, one of the tricky things with asylum is that a lot of the kids that are fleeing Central America are fleeing gang violence. So, you know, a lot of the males um, in particular, when they reach 14, 15, kind of have to decide, are you going to join a gang or are you going to be persecuted by the gangs, right? 
However, just crime in and of itself and violence in and of itself are not protected grounds for asylum. So you actually have to show that the reason you were harmed is because of political opinion, race, religion, and then there's this general social group category. And the courts have repeatedly found that refusing to join a gang is not a protected social group. Hmm. So even if you um, witnessed a friend be murdered, even if you were beaten, I mean, all of those things, if all it was was because you were resisting joining a gang, that's not a protected ground and that is not um, sufficient to receive asylum. So with this particular girl, she comes across the border how does she even get to you? Like, what's where did she go? If, if she gets picked up by the police, what's to prevent them from just deporting her immediately and not? So, how? What are the workings of that? Yes. So, so she was put in a detention center in Texas. So she, um, you know, El Salvador. It took her several weeks to travel from El Salvador through Guatemala, all through Mexico, to reach the border, um, and I believe. She was traveling with a family member because there's a lot of harm that can happen during that journey. And there's been yeah. some great books like Enrique's Journey is a wonderful book that's mm. been written about kids traveling alone on the trains through Mexico from Central America. But once um, she reached the border and crossed over, I think there was a river crossing and then there's, mm-hmm. you know, walking in the desert, she was apprehended. And when she was apprehended, they determined that she was alone. She was an unaccompanied child and she was put in a detention center with other unaccompanied youth and evaluated. And one of the things they're looking for is, does this person have a credible fear of returning to their um, Mm -hmm. home country? And the law says that if they determine that this person does have a credible fear, they have a right to present their case to a judge. So this this young girl was lucky because she had a family member who was here in the U.S., um, her mom. And so the mom was contacted and the mom was able to, um, even though the mom has no legal status here, the mom was able to sign release papers saying that she would bring her daughter to her court hearings and that she would take responsibility for her. So I think my client was in detention for two to three weeks and they found me, I believe, through Catholic Charities. Um, There's a Catholic Charities office in San Luis Obispo and they don't have an attorney on staff, but they do um, do a lot of consult- consulting around immigration issues. And so when there's something that comes in that they are not able to assist with, they have my name and number and they'll send people to me. Hmm. So when you say detention, because we've talked about this before on our show, the idea, especially when we were talking about trafficking mm-hmm. and how these victims are further victimized by law enforcement mm-hmm. when you use the word detention. So I'm thinking like... She's in a cell for essentially doing nothing wrong. And if she didn't have a mom, she would stay in a cell, right? Until she was awaiting her to put her case forward. Do they have, like, I guess what I'm asking is, do they have separate facilities for people in that situation where it feels more like a home, you know, like? Yeah, boy, good question. You know, 
We are so far from the detention centers that I've never actually been to one to say, well, this is what I saw. Or, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of advocacy with the American Immigration Lawyers Association for some of the big detention centers that are usually just out in the middle of nowhere. They're so far away from from everything. And they have lawyers that are going and um, doing interviews on site there. I think the conditions are, are pretty poor. Those are actually typically mothers and children. And uh, there's just been a lot of reporting about lack of resources, lack of access to representation, lack of access to medical care. Now, Interestingly, my all this all the kids that I have worked with that are, have always arrived without parents. I have one, two, I have five kids right now that I'm wow. representing from all from El Salvador, and they all had good experiences in detention. Oh, good. Um, oh, good. Right. So, one of my clients are two two siblings. When they arrived here, they were, uh, I want to say they were 12 and 14, or they were 11 and 13 around that age. They'd been walking for three days without food and very little water. So one of the things they said to me was, oh my gosh, the food in detention was so good. Detention, I'm saying, you know, in the being detained, because it actually, if you haven't eaten for three days, (laughs) (laughs) they said we had pizza, you know, uh, they do have schooling at the detention centers. They have art classes. They are given a medical exam. Um, now again, my clients all were there for relatively short periods and then released to a family member. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think the long term, long term detention centers are very different than the short term ones that the kids are in. And they are, are they exclusive to immigrants or are they? They're exclusive to immigrants. Okay. So they're not like lumped in with the prison population or anything like that. No. And the organization that sort of um, take, comes in and takes over is the um, Office of Refugee Resettlement for these unaccompanied children. And um, they have trained social workers and trained staff. And so my client even told me that when she had to do her interview, they gave her a stress ball to hold oh, wow. <laughs> while she was being interviewed um, and sort of were very gentle with her. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't being treated in a, in a poor manner because sure. I know that they are, especially because I, I get a lot of that from my the listservs that I'm on and stuff. Mm-hmm. But amazingly, my particular clients that were in short-term detention have all said that they were treated really well, which is actually a nice thing to hear about it our is. government, right? Yeah. Um, that they actually were not further traumatized. For sure. But they weren't sitting there for six months. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, well, even sitting here, I mean, my mind automatically went to, well, it must be horrible, you know? So, right, and yeah. I did too. Me too. Yeah. And so it, it was always been, I mean, a relief actually to hear that these kids really didn't feel like it was um, this horrible place to be. For they sure. were very excited to be released though, uh, to I their bet. family members. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so this, just this story alone, I mean, and you're saying you have five kids right now. Yeah. Uh, that seems like such an intense place to be in like what let's kind of go back a little bit what brought you to that place like is this something that you you can remember from when you were a kid like you're always had this deep heart for people that were kind of marginalized or or like where what brought you to this line of work yeah um well, I was raised by two parents who are very socially active. I remember going to anti-nuclear protests as a kid oh, wow. and um, anti-war protests. And so uh, my dad, I'm half Jewish. My dad, um, when I was in my teens, was very involved in 
sort of uh, conflict resolution missions in um, the Middle East. Oh, wow. And so I definitely had good role models um, around caring for other people and caring about social justice. I did my undergrad at UC Berkeley, where I was a peace and conflict studies major. I don't know that any other UCs at the time had that particular major. And it was there that I really discovered my passion and love for international relations issues, international development, and and working with people from different backgrounds and different cultures. I was able to do a junior year abroad in Santiago, Chile, right after they had their first election after Pinochet was the dictator. And so that really opened my eyes to experiences, different experiences that people were having around the world. And, you know, I knew I wanted to do something around um, working with people from other, from other cultures. And, and, and I love language and speaking, you know, another language with someone too is, was really powerful. But um, I did not actually want to be a lawyer at all. I thought I was going to be an ESL teacher. Same population, (laughs) (laughs) but very different role. I actually also, after college, uh, lived in uh, Taiwan for a year and a half as an ESL teacher. So I knew I wanted to go back to school. But the irony is that I was too afraid to get an ESL degree because I actually thought um, I would be limiting myself so much. And I didn't know what the career options were going to be. And at this time, I was like 26. I had been living overseas. I had done some work in nonprofits. And I was really interested in bilingual education issues. This was when um, there was a lot of the English-only movement happening Mm -hmm. in like 1997, you know, the propositions in California. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go into public policy and I'm going to focus on bilingual education and how important it is that we embrace all the different cultures and different languages that we have here. And it's not something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And so I actually applied to a master's program in public policy and was accepted and so I went out actually to Madison, Wisconsin, to the LaFollette School of Public Affairs. And I just didn't realize that public policy was math, like it was statistics and economics, and it was doing a lot of um, charts. And I wasn't good at that at all. <laughs> <laughs> and um, a friend of mine had, was doing the dual degree program in policy and law. And he was like, well, why don't you apply to law school too? And I said, I don't know. And he actually just sort of took me by the hand and walked me over to the law school and like gave me an application and said, I think, I think you should apply to law school. And I have always wanted to help people. I love the idea of um, advocating and assisting people through really complicated processes, but I'm not very confrontational. So I'm not a big debater. I don't like to make other people feel badly. Um, and so law school, you know, I, I took the LSAT. I got a really good score. I, I wrote, I knew that if I was going to go to law school, it was to work with this population. So I knew I wanted to do immigration law. I didn't even know what that meant, though. I mean, I had no idea what immigration law was. I just knew that that's the population I wanted to work with. So I got accepted and I hated law school too. (laughs) (laughs) I called my parents crying, I think after like month two. And I said, what am I doing here? And they said, we don't know. We just totally thought it was not a fit for you either. Um, Because it was so confrontational. 
But then I got my very first pro bono immigration case um, for a, a woman actually from Russia who was the victim of domestic violence. And there's some special immigration laws um, that help domestic violence victims. And the minute I started representing her and working with her and getting her declaration and, and getting her story and doing the forms and making the arguments, it was like I found my sweet spot. Mm. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Wow. That's cool. So yeah. You mentioned like the idea of policy. It's all about statistics, which is to me a little ironic that the things that are affecting people the most are the things that are so devoid of people in the process of creating them right, in a way. Right. So for you, the, the connection with someone and watching someone walk through a journey and you being able to help guide them in an area where they wouldn't be able to do otherwise was kind of the clincher for I you. I have to have the human connection. Yeah. It just, I, you know, and that's why I like teaching ESL. That's, you know, I just hadn't realized. I mean, the policy stuff is so important. And um, I always actually hate it when um, someone says, well, how to resolve the immigration problem, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's a policy question, yeah. obviously, <laughs> right? And um, it's complicated. It's hard. I don't have the answer to that. Um, however, I certainly know that when a young child from El Salvador walks into my door, walks into my office, I want to help that person for sure. and I'm going to advocate for them and I'm going to research what what I can do to help them stay here and, and, and help them navigate through that process. And not just asylum, but all the different um, immigration pathways that people have. For sure. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't easy actually to get a job in immigration law. I did something else for two years because I sent a resume out to every single immigration attorney in Sacramento, which is where my husband and I moved after law school and nobody was interested. Because immigration law is primarily solo practitioners. You don't earn a lot of money. There's not a lot of big law firms that do immigration law. And so I ended up taking a a job in a totally different field um, because of my public policy background. I was in a public law program representing municipalities. And again, though, I said, I'll do whatever pro bono immigration work is out there. And a woman who had her own law firm about a year in, contacted me and said, well, if you're serious about that, I've got a family from Zimbabwe who needs an attorney to represent them in their asylum case. And I did that case. It, it um, was very intense, re-won, and then she offered me a job. And I've been an immigration attorney ever since then. Well, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So you were, you were kind of balancing two jobs, like one in an area just yes. to make the career? Yes. And then, yes. Wow. I was okay. miserable. I was a litigator, actually. Oh, um, yeah, I was not, you know, I mean, we, we know when we're doing something that, you know, feels good and we're good at it and we're both personally fulfilled and intellectually fulfilled. And I worked with wonderful people, but I just was not, I was so uncomfortable, you know, I was so uncomfortable in litigating and, um, just, it's funny, one of my supervisors told me that the opposing counsel said that I was the sweetest attorney he'd ever met. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone wants to hire sweet attorneys, right? Like for litigation. (laughs) Yeah. That seems like such a cutthroat area to be in. Yeah. Yeah. You have to really be okay with making your opposing counsel squirm. I hate seeing people squirm. I want to like Look make them, them I want to yeah. make them I want to make them feel better, yeah. <laughs> which I can do for my clients now, right? For sure. Yeah. Um and that's why right now I get to be very you know, I can I can advocate for them and I can 
make very strong arguments, but I also get to also have that compassionate, soft side of me mm-hmm. that sits down with a young child and, and lets them tell me their story. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting balance. It's sort of like part therapist, advocate, attorney, obviously. And then you, immigration law is really complicated. So there's a huge amount of intellectual stuff you have to do, right? Yeah. To make sure you're not missing anything. So obviously, right now, with the whole presidential debate, the idea of immigration is in the public, you know, it's, it, it's a kind of every, you know, election cycle, immigration becomes another yeah. issue that people talk about. And we have some yeah. opinionated candidates. Yeah. Which, you know, what's interesting in the paper this morning. So, um, you know, Trump just won the New Hampshire primary mm-hmm. and, um, when they did the exit polls, the number one issue was, um, that people that voted for him liked his stance on immigration. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so that's, it's, it's a big one. Why do you think that is like, what for you is the most frustrating misconception about that particular issue that causes people to go down the, the Trump road? Oh boy. You know, that they're lawbreakers that, um, you know, they're ruining our country. Obviously there's the whole, they're rapists and killers and drug yeah. dealers and stuff. But I, um, it's so easy to talk in those kinds of terms when you've never had to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Like you've never had to decide whether you should leave your community, leave your home because you can't afford to feed your children or you can't, you know, I mean, have being half Jewish. um, I mean, certainly that resonates with me fleeing persecution. Right. Um, but everyone has an immigrant story, everybody. And so when people say, well, my ancestors came here legally, uh, you know, well, that's probably not true, actually. <laughs> they probably don't even know that to be the case. I doubt that they've gone in and, and really researched what the immigration laws were at that time. Um, but, you know, it was a lot easier, too, at different times, you know, yeah. when you could come to Ellis Island. But um, I love to say that my my husband his great grandmother came here from Lithuania and it was his grand great grandmother's sister who had the visa to come. Mm-hmm. But when it came time for the journey, she had scarlet fever. And so she wasn't going to have been admitted. So she gave her visa to her sister, visa fraud. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Right. Mm-hmm. Total visa fraud. So she came over as her sister. How many people have some sort of immigrant story like that. Um, So there's those issues, obviously, of the short-sightedness of it. And then, you know, I'm humbled, really, really humbled every day by my clients, how hard they work, how much they give to the community, to their families, how so many of them were the oldest male in their family. And so when they reach 17, 18, it was their responsibility to to come to the U.S. and work and send money home so that their younger siblings could afford to go to school, um, so their parents could afford their medication. And so now they're here. They've been here for 10, 11, 12 years. Um, many of them have married U.S. citizens. They have U.S. citizen children, but there's no pathway for them to get lawful status here. So I think... The biggest misconception is one, that you would do anything differently if you were in their shoes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then two, that if people just would pay taxes or work or, I don't know, not be criminals, that somehow then they could get lawful status here. It just doesn't happen that way. I mean, there is so many people that have no pathway 
to getting any kind of legal residency because our immigration laws don't allow it. Hmm. So for policy-wise, if if what would be the one thing I know this is narrowing it a little bit, but we'll be like one. I told of, you not to ask me any policy <laughs> questions. What would be the main thing that you would vote for that you feel like in this work is the biggest hurdle in preventing people from coming here legally in a way that's going to support them and their family? Like, is there is there things that you keep running into over and over again that you feel like, man, I wish they would change this aspect or many aspects? I'm not sure. Yeah, there's if I could rewrite the immigration laws and you I only could change one thing. Mm-hmm. Right now we have something that's called the permanent bar. It's a little bit wonky, but let's say someone came here when they were six, they were brought in. And when they were 13, they were taken um, back home to visit a grandmother and then brought back here. And that's their entire immigration history. They have no criminal convictions or anything. The fact that they were here for more than a year, left, and then came back in unlawfully is what we call the permanent bar. There is no way to get any kind of lawful status in the U.S. unless you go to your home country and live there for 10 years. Oh, wow. It is such a draconian (laughs) uh, law. And I, um, I just had a consult with a family a few days ago, a lawyer friend of mine, it's her kid's soccer coach. And she said, could you just meet with this family? They're just the greatest family. There's just got to be something that, you know, you can do to help them. And they had this permanent bar. And so there's nothing I can do. And so it's, it's laws like that, that are so, they just don't make sense, Mm -hmm. right? They make no sense. They're just so punitive. And so that requires some sort of immigration reform for Congress to change that. So yeah, so um, if I was going to take a scalpel and and just change really specific things, it would be something like that. But of course, on a broader scale, I would like to see some sort of immigration reform where people who have been here for a certain amount of time, you know, have no serious criminal background, who are working, paying taxes, that there's some way that they could get, you know, on the pathway to lawful permanent residency. Um, that is kind of what Obama, his executive actions has tried to do. We have um, what we call DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals right now. So if you were brought here before the age of 16 and have lived here since 2007, you're in school or you've graduated from high school, you don't have any serious crimes, you can get a work permit. It's just a work permit. It's not a pathway to legal residency, um, but it does allow you to have a social security number and work. Obama tried to extend that to parents of U.S. citizens, and it is currently being litigated. The Supreme Court's going to hear oral arguments this spring and make a decision. A judge in Texas put an injunction on it because he found that it was outside the the executive branch's constitutional um, authority, that it was stepping over into writing legislation that you know would be under the purview of Congress. So that'll be interesting to see what happens. But really, what we the problem is that we just have such a gridlock in Congress that nothing has happened. And I've been doing this since 2003. And I keep telling my clients, well, maybe we'll have immigration reform next year. And I mean, now it's, that's 13 years I've been telling people to hold out for hope for immigration reform. It's a long time to wait. Yeah, for sure. Wow. So for you, what, I can't imagine how you would even gauge this, but what is, what is more heartbreaking? Like 
putting all of this work into someone's story and someone's life with hope that the judge might say, okay, we're going to let them in and it not happening or hearing someone's story and feeling helpless. Like I can't do anything because of this law. Like there's nothing that we can do or equal. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's a fair question to ask. But. No. Um, you know, the, the thing that happens, Jeff, is that for all those people that you turn away and you can't help, there's when you win, you know, it's mm. when you really help someone that makes it worth it. And so there's that equilibrium to the heartbreak. Yeah. So I just had a family who the husband, I think came in when he was like 16, 17, had been here for over 12 years, never left, had not seen his family in all that time. He'd married a U.S. citizen. They had a child together. She petitioned for him. They did not have the permanent bar situation. So we were able to get a waiver for his unlawful entry. We were able to prove that it would be an extreme hardship to her if he couldn't stay. Mm-hmm. He had to leave and go to Mexico to Ciudad Juarez for his immigrant interview. He was granted and they called me from Mexico and he was just crying and he said, I'm going to go see my mom. It's been 12 years, right? So when you, that's just a humbling experience to be part of that journey. You know, if you, if you didn't do it because you had to say no to people, then you would never get to help those that you can't help. And Mm -hmm. so it's always sort of, I'm going to do what I can within what the law allows me to do. Luckily, um, knock on wood, none of my asylum cases have ever been denied. And that's that's probably because I'm picky about which ones I take, um, especially if they're pro bono cases, right? Yeah. So I have yet to see, I don't even want to jinx myself, but you know, there hasn't yet been one of those ones that's so heartbreaking loss um, that you kind of just want to like say, I'm done with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but they do happen because mm-hmm. sometimes they're out of our control, but definitely a huge part of my job is just the consult. So people come in and that's when you have to be honest with people about what you can do. And so most of my consults actually end with the consult because there's nothing I can do to help this family. What would be really tragic is if I wasn't honest about that. And I said, oh, of course, you know, for $5,000, I can, you know, get you a work permit. And that happens all the time. There's a lot of fraud in immigration, both by notarios and attorneys, sadly, and a lot of fraud within the community. But, you know, what you try to do is screen out all the people that aren't eligible or or really don't have strong cases so that you really are helping the people that you can help. Yeah. So what would surprise most people about what you do? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of mundane paperwork that needs to be filed. Kind of what does a regular day look like for you? Um, Well, because I'm a working mom, a regular day is me getting up and getting my kids ready for school (laughs) and making their lunches and doing all of that, getting them going. And then I really balance my time between meeting with my clients and, like you said, doing the forms and the paperwork. What would surprise people? I think one of the things I really help people do is these waivers, these hardship waivers, where we have to prove that it's going to be an extreme hardship on the U.S. citizen spouse if um, their partner can't stay. And when they say extreme hardship, that means that if you're separated for 10 years, that's normal hardship. 
That's just, that's fine. It has to be more extreme than that. So that means you have to look at, does this person have a sick child? Does this person have something in their past, some really terrible thing that happened to them that makes them more vulnerable? And so the families that you would think would be the most desirable, I guess, from sort of a general standpoint, um, the U.S. citizen who has the best income, has um, saved the most money, has maybe waited to have children until their spouse's papers are arranged. Those are the hardest to win. Really? Yes, because they, you can't prove hardship. Hmm. So I had a wonderful couple that she had a great job. They were waiting to buy a house. They were waiting to start their family until her husband's paper, his you know, papers were taken care of. And that's the only one that was denied. Wow. Because we couldn't show hardship because they had been so careful about not taking on any kind of liability, any kind of debt, not having any children. So I basically had to say to them, go live your life and come back in a year and get some hardship, um, go into debt, have a child. And they did that. And then their waiver was approved. Wow. (laughs) So... So the the right and so I, I then I have other clients who are like well I don't know I've already filed for bankruptcy I've got I owe twenty thousand dollars on this or da, da, da. and I said that's great that's perfect we can show your financial hardship and those cases are easier to win so in your experience the ones that fit the rhetoric of the right as far as be responsible do this do this are the ones that get denied more than yes absolutely <laughs> wow I don't right even, yeah Isn't that confusing yes it is that it's is confusing so. But, you know, because we are, the laws are written, you know, they're written to help those extreme hardship cases, Uh right? Where you're thinking about a sick child or um, a spouse who has cancer or something. But, you know, what happens then is the outcome isn't always what they intended when they wrote it. Yeah. Well, I guess it's encouraging on one level, knowing that the system was at least established on the idea of helping people who were outside of... Yeah. You know, a regular situation. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while. <laughs> I mean, really, truly, this family that we had to refile the waiver for, and it took almost three years to win, if you had to line up people and said, which one would you want to stay here? I mean, total, again, this is just purely by stereotype yeah, or by, um, you know, not knowing much about them. This person has this job. This person gains or earns this amount of money. I think these people would have been the ones you would have picked first. Wow. Um, nine times out of 10. And they were the hardest ones to to get papers for. So so in all your experience with these people and these stories, these these tragic stories, like how has... Because obviously, you know, your big catalyst was people. I worked with someone and I had this connection and it changed the direction. So how has the culmination of all these experiences shaped your worldview, your spirituality, like where you are today? Like, I I can't imagine it doesn't bleed into the way that you look at the world on an everyday basis and how you, you know, how you vote, how you spend your money, like all those different areas. So what are some of the more profound ways that this work has changed you? Well, I work with a lot of people who are really poor, who pay me in, you know, crumpled $20 bills that, you know, they earned from working in the fields. So certainly it's affected my ideas around wealth, what we need, what we don't need. I'm very aware when I go anywhere, really, um, to a restaurant, um, when I'm out in the community of the people that are doing 
the work behind the scenes, you know, whether they're washing dishes or picking our fruits and vegetables or gardening. I mean, those are sort of stereotypical immigrant jobs, but they actually ring true. So certainly just being grateful for, um, you know, boy, I mean, we all won the lottery when we were born in the United States, right? I mean, we know that. And, but you can kind of know it on an intellectual level, but it's not until you really hear some of these stories that you go, wow, you know, but it's hard to be grateful always in every day in the moment. Um, and as a mom of two kids, I think my work really affects how I parent. Um, I really want my kids to appreciate what they have. But of course, the more you try to get your kids to appreciate, I think the less they appreciate or the, the less, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to teach that, right? Mm -hmm. You almost have to do it. Yeah. So I hope that my, if I'm just focusing on the family, on my kids, seeing the work I do, knowing how important it is to me, that that will be a role model, kind of like my, my parents were a role model to me, seeing them be activists and in the community. Um, on a spiritual level, you know, I always, uh, when I'm in church and I'm thinking about these cases and I'm worried about clients and I'm worried about what an outcome might be. I feel like I'm always asking God to like, take my ego out of it. Um, you know, just, I don't know, be a conduit (laughs) to somehow achieve the best possible outcome I can, but also not to be so caught up into it that if I, if I lose that I can't go keep going forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I'm so bo- I feel like my clients are my family and I'm so bonded to them but at the same time there's a professional boundary that has to be there because you can't keep going. Yeah. If you're so caught up in it that one huge loss is going to keep you from helping the next person. So yeah, I mean definitely being a person who cares about others, right? Mm-hmm. Truly yeah. <sighs> helping. You know, and so there's a spiritual connection with that, I guess. Yeah. Someone may be listening to this right now and be like, wow, that's intense work. What can the rest of us do? Like, I know that, you know, you've started certain programs to help raise money because there's a lot of fees involved in the legal process and all that kind of stuff. But what are other things like aside from voting? Are there organizations that are raising money that people can go to and say, I want to be a part of helping this system? And and so, you know, there's like, Big scale, small scale, right? Yeah. So the big organizations that I like are definitely like Doctors Without Borders, um, Red Cross. Um, if you are interested in it, people are interested in refugee issues, right? Um, going to maybe helping people not need to flee <laughs> these situations, yeah. right? Going to the very, very source. On a um, state level, I really like um, here in California, UC Hastings has a Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. They're a free resource to attorneys, a lot of whom are pro bono attorneys, for um, assistance when we represent our asylum clients. They get expert witnesses from places like El Salvador on, for example, this asylum case I just did. They had a testimony from a, an expert in El Salvador on why young girls can't report um, sexual violence. And I was able to use that in my asylum case. And that was something they provided to me for free just when I said, oh my gosh, I have this 
um, client. She's this age. She's this is her situation. This is her country. And they prepare a whole packet and give it to you to help support your case. So again, that's at UC Hastings. And then, you know, the large cities oftentimes have nonprofits who are doing legal work for free or refugee um, resettlement work. And then on the very local, local level, like I said, you know, at our church, we started this um, program to help pay the filing fees for deferred action for childhood arrival cases. So, you know, it kind of depends on where, where you want to go in terms of um, there's always organizations that, that need help. Mm-hmm. What about after? So someone's gone through, they've been granted asylum is that where your work stops or is there kind of like follow-up stuff that, mm-hmm. that you do or that you know yeah. that's done? Yeah. So um, my work doesn't stop in the legal arena because once someone's granted asylum a year after that, they're eligible to apply for lawful permanent residency. And so if that's what they want to do, then I will help them with that process. And then after that, when someone's been a lawful permanent resident for five years, they're eligible to become a U.S. citizen. And um, to get citizenship, you need to pass a civics exam. You need to pass a language test. And so I will help them all the way through until they become a U.S. citizen with the legal part of it. You know, there's other things, right, that holistic stuff that people need, right? For example, I worry sometimes about my clients who have been through such terrible trauma. Are they going to continue to get the mental health uh, services that they need? How are they going to do in school? Are they going to continue with school? Are they going to work on their English? Are they going to go on to get a college degree? I actually have been feeling really called to do mentoring with high school kids who's no one who would be the first people in their family to go to college. I I wonder who's going to help them with those college applications. Who's going to tell them that that's a possibility. How are they going to get financial assistance, right? There's this whole other area around immigrants in our community. That's not just the legal part of it. I think probably boys and girls club and other organizations like that are there to assist with those things. But I love the idea of mentoring on a more holistic level so that these kids grow up and, and and just really are able to reach their full potential. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's not really what I do. I mean, I'm an immigration lawyer, but you know, it, it doesn't end once they've got the legal status here. I want to know what's going on in their high school. What, how are they doing? You know, are they getting good grades? Are, are they, are they aware of the community college options that might be available to them? Because a lot of these kids, their parents are field workers. Maybe their parents don't read and write. They don't have a lot of role models for professional degrees. You know, what can our communities do for, for these kids so that they, like, again, I think that whole idea of reaching your full potential. Though I will say, I, I got to brag a little bit about one of my um, clients from El Salvador. He got here when he was 14. He's one of my current clients. He is in all AP classes. He's got a 4.0. And he received a letter of support from his AP, like, literature teacher, just saying how amazing this kid is having only been in the US for 3 years that he is he's just knocking it out of the ballpark yeah. in school he's on the soccer team 
So, you know, he's he's going places. As soon as I can get him lawful residency here. (laughs) Because that case has not been decided yet. Yeah. I can't imagine like the the drive and fortitude it would take to even just come to this country from El Salvador or whatever you're at. Like you you mentioned walking through the desert, not having Mm -hmm. enough food. If given the right opportunities and tools, what, how we could channel, how someone could channel that drive and that fortitude into like what you're saying, like their schooling and and then in turn helping other people with that. Yeah. Well, and this particular kid, when we did his declaration, said that in El Salvador, if you don't have resources, if you don't have money, if you're not from a family of power, you're done with school at ninth grade and you go work in a store or the fields. That's it. And he said that when he saw his high school campus, he was blown away. He said, I saw it and I thought, oh my gosh, what do the colleges look like here? Because this is a high school. And he really knows that he can go to college based on merit. Um, Not that it won't be a struggle financially, obviously, but... um, but it's attainable in a way it was never attainable in El Salvador, where base at ninth grade he would have been done. Because in ninth grade, and same with Mexico, that's when you have to start paying for your tuition. Oh, wow. Yeah. So most of my um, families that I work with, ninth grade is the last year of education because that's when it stops being free. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting issue, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm going to go back and listen to this a couple of times and just kind of soak all this in because it's just so much that we don't think of and all the layers that are a part of that that are just – and you know, we both are frustrated with the rhetoric that's out there that makes it this simple black or white like – paints people in a corner in a picture and if we we just took the time to hear some of the stories that you have and others that are working in this place to know like there's some real there's some stuff there that we would never understand that that would that would shape us in a in a better way and how much more is that shaping people who are coming into this country that are just you know trying to escape the things that we are trying to prevent happen in our country and whatever and, it takes uh, so much bravery. Yeah. It takes so much bravery and so much hard work. And I'll end with this. When I was recently interviewing an El Salvadorian family and trying to figure out why they left El Salvador, and I said, you know, was it the poverty? Was the poverty really the reason? And she said, no, Amber. She said, we're so much poorer now than we ever were in El Salvador. She said, paying for rent, paying for, you know, paying all the bills. She goes, it's, it's so much harder to survive here in the U S she goes, we left because of the violence. We left because we were afraid, not because of the poverty, not because life, you know what I mean? I mean, people do flee for poverty, but I think it's important to know that a lot of people flee for safety Hmm. because it's actually to come here as someone who doesn't have documents, it is so hard to find a job and you're going to be in the lowliest of the low position. You know, you might have had your own business in your home country or, you know, have had some other kind of soul affirming, you know, uh, community. And then you come here and you're alone. You're working one or two jobs, you know, dishwashing, gardening, picking strawberries, it's a really hard life. It's not something that people just pick because it's sort of like, you know, oh, wow, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Thank you so much for, for doing this. I appreciate it so You're much. You're welcome. Um, so is, is there anything else you want to add? Like, is there anything we can direct people towards? Like, 
for your firm or anything like that? No, no, okay. no just treat everybody with kindness. Sounds good. Well, thank you, again. <laughs> I really, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Amber. You're welcome, Jeff. So that'll do it for us this week. If you enjoyed this interview and you would like to add anything to the conversation, you can do that at iranicast.com slash 51. And as usual, if you would like to support the show, you can see all the ways to do that at iranicast.com slash support. And if you would like to give us feedback for future episodes, you can do that at iranicast.com slash feedback. So for this week, I'm Jeff, and thank you for joining the conversation. 